0: Let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let me read. I'm gonna, we're going to walk through the whole chapter this morning and see if we can hear the Lord speaking to us and guiding us today as we continue our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes starting in verse chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work, That they come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along. With that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. In this passage, it seems like we cover a lot of ground, and we're going to try to bring it together if we can. Um, But in this passage, we're going to look at three things here. Uh, First, we'll see the symptoms, some of the symptoms of life under the sun. And we've talked extensively as we've gone through this series so far about life under the sun and what that means, that we're living in this world under the sun. So symptoms, we'll see some symptoms of that, and then we'll see a mitigation of those symptoms. A A little garden, a little place of rest and respite right in the middle of this passage. And this will lead, I believe, to an invitation to gospel community and to consider what it is that Christ has done and is inviting us into and our hope going forward. So let's take these one at a time. Let's first look at, look at these symptoms. Some symptoms, not comprehensive. We're going to continue to see other symptoms as we walk through other passages of Ecclesiastes in the coming weeks. But here there are, are four symptoms, at least, of life under the sun. The first one that Solomon gives us is oppression. There was a problem that Solomon saw in his day, and he begins to try to engage it, that in his day the wealthy class was oppressing the lower class. There are are theologians who've looked into this, historians, and one of the ways this worked itself out was in a, a structure that existed in society of debt slavery, in which a poor family working class family or individual who couldn't repay his debts could for a time enslave himself to the person to whom he owed these debts until those debts were paid off and then he could be freed. But I think you can already fill in the blanks of what happens to a poor family when they have trouble paying off their debts. Is it easy for them to climb out of that hole? Well, no, it's not. And so so families, even generations, would find themselves in this debt slavery situation, this debt slavery structure. There's a few places in the Minor Prophets or in the Old Testament where, where God, we see him addressing his people because they had been enslaved to foreign powers, but that's not the situation that we're reading about here. This is a neighbor a fellow Israelite, a fellow member of the people of God, that community, enslaving his neighbors, enslaving a fellow Israeli, enslaving his fellow Jewish believer, someone whom he's been instructed by Scripture to treat as a brother or a sister. And And yet their relationship comes to be defined by this enslavement. And so Solomon observes the the grinding misery that families, once they find themselves in this position, find it very, very difficult to escape from. And there's very little incentive for those who were in the wealthy class to, to provide means for them to escape because they benefit from having free labor. So you can see how this could become a cyclical problem from generation to generation. This is something that Solomon sees happening in his world. And I think we continue to see ways in this world, the world we live in, in which the poor are exploited by the wealthy. Right? We could think of examples of oppression. Second problem he addresses is, is that of, of rivalry or competition. We're tempted to say this is just a competitive marketplace situation, but but Solomon makes sure to point out that this is driven by a neighbor envying his neighbor. So we have, we have a phrase for this, right? The rat race or keeping up with the Joneses. That's still alive and well in the world in which we live, right? This isn't just ancient history. This is, this is really where we live. He also wants to come against laziness that he observes. A man folds his, his hands and self-cannibalizes. He eats his own flesh through his own laziness on one hand, but then on the other hand, Solomon also observes uh, overworking. Kind of defines a lot of people's lives in our country. Isn't that true? Overworking. Working not just hard enough to provide for a family, but got to go to the next level, got to climb that next ladder, and pretty soon your life is consumed by work. all Solomon says, motivated by envy. Third problem he notices is something else that work does to us, and I think we probably have, have experienced this to one degree or another. Maybe you have the isolating effect of work, where Solomon says, this guy's been working so hard, he's been working so hard that he hasn't stopped and looked around for a while and says, for whom am I even working? Who am I going to share this with? When he refers to a son or a brother, Solomon is talking about who's going to inherit all the fruit of all the hard work that I've done. Well, this person has become so isolated, there's nobody even going to inherit. And so what's the point of all the hard work he's done? He's working so hard, he never stops to ask himself, Why? And Solomon says, this is vanity. It's an unhappy business, he says. I started in my notes to just, as I was studying, to just put S period, A period, W period, because he repeats so often, striving after wind. Striving after wind, striving after wind. You're never gonna catch it. You're never, it's right, I can can almost, you're never gonna catch it. So the isolating effect of work. And then this final section that he, he goes in, and, and some commentators lab, label it government problems, which this is hard to identify because our government, as you know, has no problems. We could also label it political acclaim as, as waves that even, I don't know if you identify with this, make us seasick. We feel seasick because of the waves, again and again, a new wave of political promises a new wave of political movements that's going to solve all the world's problems. Another wave. How many waves of political acclaim have you lived through in your lifetime? And are we making progress? Progress is one of our fundamental American values, right? And, and do these waves of political movements and political acclaim, do they serve us? He cites a situation sort of like Joseph. It might be talking about Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh was very powerful. Joseph was imprisoned and then the Lord raised him up. He might be describing a situation like like David and King Saul, where David was born born a a poor shepherd boy into a a blue-collar family. Saul was the powerful king. And yet wouldn't take anybody's advice, went a little bit crazy, lost that power through disobedience to God's leading. David was promoted by God to that, to that kingship in the kingdom where he himself had been born poor. But then David mismanages his family. We read about that in the Old Testament. And he has a son himself, Absalom, who becomes very politically popular. When David's popularity, the guy who used to be very popular, now his popularity seems to be waning and people are coming into the city gates grumbling and Absalom makes it his political duty to go down by the city gates and and lend a kind and considerate ear to all the complainers who are coming in and their struggles. And Absalom shakes his beautiful big head of hair and says, I am so sorry for the struggles you've been experiencing. If I was king, this is what I would do. And he makes his own list of political promises, ascending to popularity. We're not sure what situation he's describing here, but he he laments the fact that even a good king isn't remembered very long. And a new wave of political promises, a new wave of acclaim, comes across the nation. Solomon observes wave after wave of what he calls striving after wind. Isn't it amazing, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, it just sounds like where we live. (laughs) This ancient wisdom literature sounds like where we live. And so Solomon leaves us thinking, you know, you might might live under the sun if you are stuck in an oppressive system. You You might live under the sun if tears are your only friend. You might live under the sun if you feel driven by envy, if you're isolated by your work, if you experience the seasickness that I've described. And I call these symptoms because these symptoms point to a greater underlying problem. These are all symptoms of a bigger problem that we live a life that is under the sun, cut off from the God who has made us. And our temptation is to, maybe, maybe if we attack oppression, maybe if we attack isolation, maybe if we take on these problems one by one, but we're dealing with the symptoms, not the root of the problem here. Beth and I had friends who, a number of years ago, their little girl was having pain in her legs having some pain in her legs, and and she couldn't figure it wasn't terrible pain, but it was uncomfortable, and kind of a dull ache, and she didn't know, they took her to the doctor, and they didn't know, and they got a call that ended up changing their life when the doctor told them that their little girl actually had leukemia. The only symptom she'd had up to that point was pain in her legs. How unloving of a doctor to call and say your daughter has leukemia. No, that was actually a loving, difficult, but loving, phone. it would have been unloving if the doctor would have said, you know what, just give her some ibuprofen. So they'll take care of the pain. We'll just deal with the symptoms, not the underlying problem, right? Solomon is describing symptoms of a deeper problem here, and it gives us pause here, To consider in our communities, in our world in which we live, in this nation, do we still observe these problems? Have we made progress? I remember a discussion my senior year of high school where we were talking about have we made progress? And we thought, well, let's look at slavery in our country. We certainly have made progress. And we abolish slavery. But then the conversation did come back around to, well, but what about hatred, envy, people who look down their noses at others? That's really underneath a problem like slavery. So we have made progress in regard to a structure like slavery, and yet have we made progress in loving our neighbors? That's a different question entirely. Oppression is a hard one to consider because depending on what oppressive system or what oppressive situation you're describing, it can make you feel maybe defensive or you try to justify that. It's hard to consider. For instance, I'm a big World Cup fan. I'm a soccer fan. Looking forward to, is it Qatar or Qatar? I can never remember how to pronounce it. 2022 coming, the U.S. actually qualified for the World Cup coming um, later in November of this year. And yet I can't get away from one of the nagging realities of this upcoming World Cup in that if you've read any of the news about it, many of the stadiums constructed with Middle Eastern oil money were constructed basically by slave labor. Migrant workers who were brought in from India, Philippines, Bangladesh, many of whom, their passports were simply taken by their employers. They were moved into overcrowded living conditions with no air conditioning. This is in the middle. It's 102 degrees on a cold day. Amnesty International reports that there have been thousands of deaths, uninvestigated, that simply the cause of death was just written accident. (laughs) And yet those thousands of deaths represent families that had put their hope in a loved one leaving home, going to work in a foreign country to send money back to family who now no money is coming back to family. These are realities in our world, right? We know Super Bowl comes every year. Love the Super Bowl. I love watching football. Married into the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hope they make it. We'll see what happens. And yet we know that every year in the city in which the Super Bowl takes place, human trafficking and prostitution spikes during the weeks leading up to and during the Super Bowl. These kind of oppressive situations in our world that we can't escape from. We've heard over the last couple of years, many people of minority ethnic background in our country trying to find their voice to express the pain that they have experienced. Sometimes that's difficult, depending on your background coming from and the way it's framed. It's, it's difficult to listen. It's difficult to, to give ear to voices who've been up to this point unheard. Isn't that true? And of course, today we can say that we need to continue to work hard to hear the unheard voices that have been literally unheard over the last 50 years. 63 million babies whose cries never made it to the open air because they experienced the pain of that abortion in the womb of their own mother. We have to work hard to give ear to voices that are unheard. Have we made progress? We still see laziness. We still see overwork. Both pitfalls that we can fall into. Isolation. Certainly over the last couple of years, we have a, a national crisis of isolation. And we've already talked about politics and the challenges that we see there. And yet, in the middle of this passage, we're not left just in despair. Solomon gives us a little garden. He invites us into a little garden, a little retreat center, a a, a little place of mitigation where the pain of these realities can can be made a, a little bit easier to endure because of community because we're not facing this pain alone, right? Everything in this passage was S-A-W, striving after wind, except for this paragraph in verses 9 through 12. Let me read it to you one more time. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one, he says, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, and there's no sexual connotation here, this is simply two people keeping each other warm here. If two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one person keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly Broken. There's a progression that he's giving us, giving us here in this little garden that he's inviting us into. This, this little place of, of mitigating the sorrows of oppression and isolation and political acclaim and waves of false promises that are made. A progression from one to two to three, moving us from isolation into community with other people that can encourage us, that can buoy us up, that we can be an encouragement and a strength to them, that we can say, you've fallen down, but I can pick you up. And sometimes we're the ones who fall down. Remember the the man that was brought to Jesus on a a cot lowered through the roof by his four friends? Sometimes we're the ones who are carrying that cot, carrying our friend to Jesus. Sometimes we're the one on the cot. (laughs) We're the ones getting carried to Jesus. Because of community, the benefits of community that he describes here. Productivity. Two or three people working together can accomplish a lot more. Assistance, warmth, security, strength, companionship. These things mitigate the effects of oppression in our world. When I'm oppressed, when I'm a victim of oppression, if I'm all alone... It's all the worst. But if I have a friend to stand with me, maybe I can trudge through this. We can trudge through it together, right? When I'm caught up in envy, my friend can remind me, there's, there's more to life. Or, or maybe life too short to get stuck living for only this, right? Companionship rescues us from isolation that we're tempted to. All of this points us to something that is vital and central to Christianity, and that's an invitation. It's an invitation to gospel community, something that we really value here at Redeemer Church, right? Something that we we strive toward. It's remarkable when we read about the earliest days of the Christian church. When we read back in, in the book of Acts and in other historical documents, we look back... And we read about a remarkable community, a remarkable community where if you walked into a a meeting of Christians in Jerusalem in the first century, you would have seen rich people, wealthy people sitting right next to poor people, worshiping Jesus together, sharing a meal together. You would have seen, and this doesn't seem radical to us, but it would have been at the time, you would have seen men and women in a home together worshiping the Lord. This was not just a secret society for men. This was not a place where the women had to go out to the backyard by themselves. The men and the women were together worshiping. You would have seen majority culture and minority culture people worshiping together, coming together calling each other brother and sister. This was radical. You would have seen religious elite and rebel fringe. You would have seen people who worked for government, like in military, along with revolutionaries who were trying to overthrow the government. People from all kinds of different backgrounds coming together around this man called Jesus. You would have seen both slaves and owners. We read about this in the pages of the New Testament. Slaves and owners, members of one church, coming together to worship. We read these radical statements like there was was no needy person in the church at Jerusalem. There was no needy person because people were doing crazy things. The community of of which they were part was more valuable to them than the house they owned. People were selling houses and lands and then bringing it to the apostles' feet to be distributed, not in a controlling way, not in a way, yeah, this is how my name is spelled on the gold brick you put on the wall. To, distributed to the, given to the apostles to be distributed however they saw fit. How should we use this gift of a home that you sold? And you brought, oh, whatever, whatever needs come up. This is, a, this is a remarkable, miraculous community that we read about here. Now, if, if we ask someone who had been part of this community in Jerusalem, we read about in the book of Acts, if we had asked them, how did you solve the oppression problem? How did you solve the envy problem? When You know, when you got together, you had your strategic planning meetings. You brought in some politicians and some social workers and you, you, you formed a coalition. How, how did you solve... These problems, to get, to get rich and poor, to get slaves and owners sitting at the same table so you don't have a, a slave strike and a walkout, how do you get them sitting at the same table with fellowship? I think they probably first would have looked at you with a, a little bit of a confused look on their face and said, well, we didn't really set out to solve the oppression problem. We didn't really set out to solve the envy problem. But I can tell you that Jesus lives among us. This Jesus who died. He lives among us. And that has changed everything. And if you would have asked them. Who is this Jesus? That lives among you. That has produced Such a a unique and incredible community of people. They probably would have pointed you to Isaiah 53. Which was an Old Testament prophecy about God's Messiah who would come. And they would have said, when we met Jesus, when we heard about Jesus, we looked back at this passage and we said, I know that guy. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 53, I want to start in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. iniquities. The message of this church would have been, this Jesus who died is alive. He came into this world. He entered into, so if you want to know how he how he solved the oppression problem, I'm not sure I can answer that question, but I do know that Jesus entered into the oppression of this world, not by becoming oppressive himself, but by receiving and embracing that oppression. He entered this world working hard, not for his own benefit, but to build up his community, to build up the people around him. Jesus did not isolate himself. He did not set himself on a pedestal. Quite the opposite. He gathered together a community of people around him, common people, people from every background and walk of life, men and women, gathered them around him, And said, I want you to walk with me. I have a mission to accomplish. And then I'm going to send you out on that mission. Some of these people, they may never meet me face to face. But they'll meet you. Quite the opposite of putting himself up on a pedestal. Jesus also, interestingly, it's been pointed out that he never pursued or held any political office. He didn't get swept up in politics. But instead started and Started a movement of discipleship and service. Sometimes I think that we look to God for solutions. But here's an example of God doesn't simply give us solutions. He gives us himself. He certainly has done in Jesus Christ. Hasn't just given us solutions so that we can list off our problems and tick off the boxes, oh God, you still have to get to this one. Instead, he's given us himself in Jesus Christ who came to enter into all these symptoms that Solomon is describing. Did you hear that as we walked through Isaiah 53? Isn't it amazing? This prophecy, how well it describes the life of Jesus and how it nails many of these symptoms that Solomon is describing. It's interesting then that in the midst of this newfound Christian community, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, exhorting the community how to live as community. And I want to read this to you as well and have us think about, could our church be like this? Could we take this up as exhortation, as gospel community, especially in the world in which we Live that we've been meditating on. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. He wrote this, "'Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer.'" Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This exhortation reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us of what Paul pictured when he thought of Christian community, of a gospel community living life under the sun in this world that's full of oppression, overwork, and isolation, and waves of political acclaim. It also reminds us that we fall short, right? We need this exhortation. That in this sense, do we as the church claim that we are the solution for the problems of this world? No. We ourselves have fallen short in many ways, right? We do. We're a confessional community. We're a community that confesses that we have fallen short as we confess our faith in Jesus. Right? Right? We confess that freely. If you asked anybody in this room, any of the members of our church, I think they would be quick to confess the reality of that falling short in their lives. And yet, because of Jesus, because Jesus is the one who has loved us with a genuine love. Because Jesus is the one who has abhorred what is evil and held fast to what is good. Right? We could go through this passage again. Since Jesus is the one who has loved us with a brotherly affection. Since Jesus has outdone us in showing honor. Since Jesus has not been slothful, but has been fervent in spirit, serving the Lord's purpose. Since Jesus has rejoiced in hope, been patient in the tribulations he walks through, constant in prayer, since he has met the needs of the saints and shown us hospitality, inviting us in, since Jesus has blessed those who persecuted him and not cursed them. We could go through this whole passage. Isn't that true? That because of Jesus, it gives us a desire to join with believers in every generation who have set a pace in life under this sun, in trying to reach out to provide and innovate in in medical care, to consider the needs of orphans and foster children in our communities, setting a pace in that, setting a pace in education, right? Right? Setting a pace in government, setting a pace in all different facets of the world in which we live this life under the sun. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. Not because the church has done it perfectly, but because Jesus has loved us first. And so he sets a pace for us and he invites us in to the work which he is accomplishing. And we have a longing, right? We have a longing for that kind of community to be established and to grow, that that kind of fellowship would increase in a world that is full of lots of different kinds of pains and frustrations and oppressions. Too numerous for us even to list here. I want to invite our worship team to come to the stage as we finish this up. We long... Right? We long because of Jesus. We long because of Jesus to be a church that reflects what we read about in Romans chapter 12. Right, We long to be a church where women are lifted up and protected, where children are nurtured and valued, Where we don't get caught up in political hype, even as we're committed as citizens of these United States. Because our hope is in Jesus. That we don't fall into the trap of thinking we have to choose between caring for pregnant mothers and their unborn children. Don't we have enough resources in our communities to care for both? We don't have to choose. And so we confess, and we invite Jesus, come live among us. Come live your life in this church, and we pray for that to be true of all the churches across Chesapeake, across Hampton Roads, again across these United States, in the midst of much political turmoil, Jesus comes. Let's make that our prayer right now. Jesus, we do ask that you would come. We recognize the oppression, the temptations, the isolation, the waves of political movements in this world. But Lord, our hope is in you. We ask that you would, because you've taken hold of us, we ask that you would come and live your life in us. That we could be a community, that we could be a church that reflects the character and the work that you have done, that you are doing, that walks in step with and in the power of your Holy Spirit. That we might know and offer the love of our Father in heaven. Lord, we pray that you will lead us in that because of Jesus. Amen.